welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she was low-hanging fruit today. She is just an illustration of our great crisis. We have a reality problem in this country. I am not talking about a problem-facing reality. I am talking about even seeing reality, acknowledging reality, arguing our differences on a, on a base of agreed reality. No, our whole society right now is standing on a soggy base of lies and bullshit. Bullshit. The longer we live in this world of lies and bullshit, the deeper we sink and the harder it will be for us to get back to a premise of reality. So there was a big lesson today when Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene went to the floor of the House of Representatives, that historic floor, to say school shootings are real. 9-11 was real. Q is not real. But look what it took to get her to acknowledge reality, not face reality, acknowledge reality. The most powerful Republican in Washington, Mitch McConnell, denounced her. And the Democrats who control the House were preparing to strip her of her seat just on the Education Committee. So what this shows is that our leaders have the power to demand reality. They just have not been doing it. In fact, Republicans refused to do it last night to Marjorie Taylor Greene. So Democrats set up a vote to force the Republicans to take a position one way or another, a vote the Republicans didn't want to face. In gratitude to her weak-kneed Republican colleagues who had refused to punish her, and in a last effort to spare them this public vote, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene went to the House floor to recant some of her mm, crazier beliefs. But she did not recant or apologize for her role as a foot soldier in Donald Trump's war to overturn the results of a legitimate election. Trump's war was based on nothing but lies and bullshit a war that led to violence. And now he insists it's not his fault and that his followers took him both seriously and literally when he took them, you know, told them to go out there and march in the Capitol and fight. So the punishment of Marjorie Taylor Greene is just a prelude to next week's impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Rex Chapman hit the big point when he said Mitch McConnell was fine with Marjorie Taylor Greene when her name was Donald Trump. Donald Trump and Republicans are still swimming in Trump's lies and bullshit right now. He did not win the election. There was no rampant fraud. Of course, he made all that up. And then he tried to intimidate responsible Republican officials into making it true. And when they failed, he just, you know, launched a mob of his followers at the Capitol, where they ransacked the building, murdered a police officer and a few of their own, and tried to lynch their own party's vice president. We have been living inside of Trump's madness so long that we aren't really fully grasping how dangerous this has become and how crucial it is now to shut it down. And I'm not just pointing at Republicans. I mean, all of us. It's barely been a month. And this is why Marjorie Taylor Greene has to be stopped. And it is why Republicans need to vote to convict Trump in his impeachment trial, because this is just the beginning. There are more Marjorie Taylor Greens in the Capitol right now, and there are more that are planning to run and probably will win. And it is why Mitch McConnell's denunciation of Marjorie Taylor Greene is a hypocritical distraction unless he now applies the same standard to the former president he enabled for four years. Huh, but he got his tax cuts, right? 
This is not an impeachment trial to decide if the president incited the mob. This is a trial to judge whether we are okay having our leaders operate in a land of lies and bullshit. If McConnell really believes his own words against Representative Green, he needs to rally 17 Republicans to vote to convict Trump. It shouldn't be that hard. He dictates the rules of how they operate day in and day out. Who gets to sit on committees? Who gets to speak? Who gets to get fundraising power? His life, their lives depend on his rules. So I'm pretty sure he could rally 17 Republicans to vote to convict Trump. And that would be a very good first step in our country's long walk out of our swamp of lies and bullshit. This is bigger than just partisan politics. There is a reason why so many working people are upset at our government officials. And some are taking it in all sorts of directions. I'm talking about white working people and Latinos and black working people and basically anybody who has to cobble a living together in our grotesquely unfair economy. They're angry because they have to live and struggle in the real world while the rich and the powerful and their political leaders and corporate demigods float their way through a world of make-believe, a world of lies and bullshit. A bunch of bros in Silicon Valley write algorithms out of thin air that produce nothing but data about us, and then they become billionaires, and they perpetuate extremism. Our stock markets soar, soar, while the real world economy sinks. Somehow the real world sucks, but working people don't get to move to that world of lies and bullshit that the powerful seem to occupy. The house took a small step fixing this by punishing, just punishing Marjorie Taylor Greene. Actually, they didn't even punish her. She was rewarded that seat and they took away her reward. The Senate can take a big step, a huge step by convicting Donald Trump. And then we have to get the issues that created these fantasy politicians. We have to get to those key issues, but first we gotta actually use the power that we have as Democrats to hold Republicans accountable the way that we did today. And Republicans need to muster some courage or else they're going to have a lot more problems on their hands very soon. We have a phenomenal show today. Representative Rab is here, of course. It is Thursday, and so is the great Arun Chowdhury. And right after this little, little baby break, we have the executive editor of The American Prospect, David Dayan, who is here to talk about some lies and bullshit of the American economy the Wall Street game stop situation, how that happened, and of course, the checks that we're all waiting for, that we we voted for, and that we need so we get out of this pumped up fake Wall Street lies and bullshit economy and actually start to support working people. We'll be right back right after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So we are, uh, we got through our first month of the Nomi Key Show book club, which is, <laughs> it's hard, man. I signed up for four books a month. That means I'm reading every moment I can. Uh, I'm waking up early to get things done earlier so that I can read. I already feel the wrinkles in my brain. Like the more wrinkly your brain gets, I guess the smarter you get. So I'm, um, 
I'm living up to the challenge with you guys. Uh, If you're not part of our book club, or if you don't know about it, we started a book club in January. And the goal of the book club is to uh, help us, us work through this insanity. And we are now officially partnered with a couple of book publishers. We're launching with Verso Books, dear friends of the show. Uh, Verso Books, many of their authors come on regularly. Uh, and now we are working with them on featuring some of the books that have already been published with Verso and then upcoming books uh, in this year. And we will be having authors when they're available to come on, speak with us about the books that we are reading with each other. And uh, for those of you who don't know the book club, there are three different book clubs. You, you have a choice of one book a month, two books a month, or going for the gold, four books a month. That's what I'm doing with you guys. Uh, we have, of course, featured Harvey Kay, who is the author of Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, regular on our show. It's a brilliant book to launch the book club series about because it really dives into one of our earliest, when I say revolutionary, I mean like radical revolutionary figures who called for independence uh, just a couple of years after showing up from, the, from Britain um, in America. Uh, of course, it was not the United States then. Fascinating series. We've done two conversations with him. And then uh, we also had a conversation with Arun Chowdhury, who's on today. And we talked about an old goodie, uh, The Plunket of Tammany Hall. This book is about the lessons that came out of Tammany Hall, which is a controversial. Uh, I think a lot of the, like, the, the, you know, there, as you'll hear, if you have lessons already, there's honest graft and dishonest graft. And I feel as if today many folks see Tammany Hall as just dishonest graft. But it turns out uh, what we learned through the speeches of, of one of the great Tammany Hall leaders is that they were working to give working people, immigrants, uh, power in New York against the, uh, the, the oligarchs of the city, many of whom were Dutch wealthy oligarchs whose streets are named after in New York. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. I have been getting, I mean, both of, both of them are, are fascinating, but I think uh, folks will, will realize the lessons that came out of the Plunket of Tommy Hall could still apply today. I definitely recommend you check it out. Uh, and we're going to be launching this month's book series with Josh Fox's friend of the show, The Truth Has Changed, uh, he actually, it's really interesting about this book is, okay, the, the story is really about his life of, of activism, but uh, much of it is, talks about 2016 and the 2016 election, but he did it as a one-man show across the country. I don't know how many times I've seen it, many times. Uh, I saw him test it, you know, many times, but he's been on the road doing this show for a couple of years now, and it is now going to be a feature-length film that uh, we have links to. So if you're part of the book club, you will also get the film. But there, it is in book form as well. And so he's going to join us to talk about the creation of The Truth Has Changed. It's a fascinating book, and he's, of course, very entertaining. So go check out the book club. Very excited uh, to launch the book club. And if you are not already, please join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. That's where you can sign up for the book club. It's where you can be a patron because we are, you know, we're independent media. Uh, no one gave us their lists. Uh, nobody invested in our show. You guys invested in our show. And that is why we are able to function. So grateful to everybody right now uh, for being a part of our family. Uh, and we will be right back with the one and only David. Oh, 
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. David Dayan is executive editor of the American Prospect. You can go sign up for their newsletter. I don't know. I I don't know how anybody can read as much as you and write as much as you and have a life. I <laughs> my brain. Oh, you're on mute, David. I'm sure you said something brilliant just now, and I missed it. Ask my wife. I don't have a life. Um, <laughs> Clearly, but that's a beautiful <laughs> view. So I guess it makes up for it. Thank you. I think it has been almost a year, 11 months uh, or so since we yeah. saw each other in person. It was right before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm frankly shocked that none of us uh, got COVID from each other and didn't know because <laughs> it was the Super Tuesday event in Los Angeles. Right. And I'm sure many of our audience was, was there. This was this event. It was our first live event, our only live event because of COVID, that we launched in, on Super Tuesday in California. And I think a lot of us thought it was going to turn out differently. And, you know, we sold our tickets, everybody showed up, and there was just this energy of like, okay, let's get through this. <laughs> right. And we had like pep talks backstage, like, okay, we can't make everybody feel bad, but like, can't control the election. It was right. not expected. So it's great to see you. Yeah. Uh, Good and, to you see know, you again. I feel mm-hmm. like we've mourned through some of this. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about, you You have, have two stories out today uh, that are, I think, are extremely relevant and, and interesting, given your knowledge. And uh, speak to me like I don't understand any of this stuff, because <laughs> I don't. Um, I'm, I, I, I read your work because I want to have a deeper understanding of procedural, uh, how, yeah. how, how a bill becomes the law, because they don't do those um, cartoons anymore for me, right. <laughs> so I have to go to you. Yeah. But also... Um, Wall Street. And, and I want to start off with mm-hmm. just this GameStop story and what you were sure. able to uncover. And, and I, mm-hmm. I, I want to pull one quote in particular. You said that you first wrote about, it's, is it SPACs or SPACs? I might, SPACs. I, don't know I get it. SPACs. SPACs. You can just call them SPACs. Yeah. SPACs. So yeah. you wrote about them in, in August. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you say that they are effectively an end run around the initial public offering process. A rich financier sets up a shell company that it puts on the stock exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How okay. First off, like how does this relate to the GameStop story? Well, it relates to the GameStop story in the sense that uh, our financial markets are rampant with overspeculation. And it's not just a few kids on Reddit. It's not just uh, in in this one stock in GameStop. It's the whole market. And a good example of how this is the whole market is are these SPACs. So SPACs, uh, as, uh, as you mentioned, they are um, essentially, uh, sometimes they're called blank check companies. They are companies that have no product, no sales, uh, no business whatsoever to speak of. They are put onto the stock market. And then the idea is within a couple of years or a few months, they buy a private company and then merge them with the SPAC. And so it's a way for a private company to go public without having to go through the IPO process. Now, what does that mean? The IPO process requires companies to tell all investors what their business model is, what their their profits are, what their losses are, what their prospects are. They don't have to do any of that. They don't have to disclose any financial information as long as they do it through this SPAC merger process. Uh, so, uh, it, it's, it's a way to go public without having to disclose anything. But what's crazy about the SPACs, right, is that they have become so popular that the SPACs are being traded and are going up 
before they do any mergers with any okay. companies. So, so then how are you they, are- Yeah, how, how do they even get to that point where they're a lot before merger, before they go public? Right. How are they even allowed to, tr to be traded in any way? Well, they're a company that's set up usually by a rich guy who's known like uh, Paul Ryan has a stack. Um, uh, 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 <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal has a what? stack. Yes. Um, uh, so they get a name that people know or, or, or an investor, a known investor. And they say, I just created a company. It, it just has a bunch of money. It doesn't have anything else, but I just created a company. And so that company goes on to the, the stock exchange uh, and, and people can buy and sell that company, assuming that that company will eventually merge with a real company that can sell something uh, or contribute something. So, uh, uh, so it, you know, people are getting all mad. Like, I can't believe these kids are buying GameStop and it has no, it's, 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 it's trading far larger than its economic fundamentals. They're trading air, like this SPAC thing. They're trading something that has nothing. It's, it's just a shell. And that is trading pretty rapidly uh, throughout the financial markets. There are more SPACs created uh, in terms of a dollar value in the first three weeks of this year than there were in all of 2019. Uh, so, so this is so a newer... When did it's, this it's, originate? It, yeah, it's been around for a long time, but it was always seen as super shady because it was a way to get private companies public without having to disclose any financial information. So it used to be a backwater. Like nobody, people would think, well, if you're doing a SPAC merger, then obviously that's a shady company. I'm not going to deal with that. That has completely changed. These have gotten some measure of credibility in the last year. And uh, people are getting excited about them and they're, they're going into them. So, so really this SPAC mania has happened in the last year. In 2020, there were more uh, SPACs in terms of dollar value than in the history of the stock market. Like, so there were more just in 2020 than ever, like all, everything else combined, every other year combined. This, there were this, more in 2020. This reminds me of the LLC loophole in New York, which is... Okay. Um, for folks who don't know, uh, so New York real, actually real estate everywhere, but, um, New York real estate in particular had, had a bunch of, because real estate industry, hi, now you're watching me. <laughs> they don't like me. Every time I say something, I get like trolls coming at me. Um, so the New York state, uh, real estate, uh, developers in particular, I mean, New York city is at least prior to COVID, uh, real estate, hot commodity, uh, people can set up LLCs and and through this loophole where you can basically um, you could explain this much better but basically like you can set up an LLC house it in like a PO essentially a PO box in one building or have an apartment that has like nine thousand LLCs and it right. turns out that these LLCs which are real estate holdings can give money to candidates and just all sorts of break all sorts of rules to push further and further and further um, the real yeah. estate agenda. But um, aside, yeah, so, I mean, aside from that, there's also just this, this the, the parking of capital in real estate to be safe. So foreign interest oligarchs, of course, notoriously are parking their money in, in real estate. Um, and you can't, it doesn't have to be disclosed. I mean, it, it's not taxed. There's no oversight really of these LLCs. It's either shell companies. I mean, it's just like the shell companies abroad. So... I guess my question is like, where is this also a way to hide money and frankly disrupt our 
uh, our economic system in, in a sense is tied to what, the- uh, what I would say is, I mean, there is some similarities. There are some similarities there. Uh, what I would say is that this is just indicative of a total mania, a, a real frenzy in markets. Like literally rich people don't know where to put their money. So, you know, they're, they're, now it's like, all right, well, let's try these SPACs. Let, let's see if this works out. And uh, it, it, it indicates that the whole uh, sort of elite uh, scorn of, of GameStop and some of these other things, it's like, check yourselves before you, you start talking about GameSpot. Like there's absolute, ridiculous, useless, unproductive over-speculation in financial markets. And the SPACs are a much better uh, example of that actually than GameStop because it's more widespread and it's more ridiculous. Here's a, here's a perfect example. So you remember WeWork? So we were. I know because it's a real, a huge real estate. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. the, the, a lot of their value yeah. was in real exactly. estate in New York. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we were tried to do an initial public offering, tried to go public right. a couple of years ago, and it showed its financials, and the financials were so ridiculous that it canceled the initial public offering mm-hmm. because it, it just showed that the whole thing was a Ponzi scheme and a fantasy. WeWork is getting bought by a SPAC, so. Now they are going to go public and they don't have to uh, deal with uh, giving out the disclosure, which created the worst IPO in history. So, and this is know, like a buyout, is, basically. Like it's like a buyout. They're being bought out by this blank check company, this company that has no, no products or anything. It's just a shell company. And now that company becomes WeWork, essentially. So, is this like vulture capitalism too at the same time? Like a company fail? It's not really like WeWork. I mean, WeWork has failed. And, no, and I mean, I, 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 attached I, just, I just think it's more indicative of the complete irrational exuberance. And it's also an, a, a serious investor protection problem. So if you're an investor in this SPAC, and they pick up a company that's super shady and that has no uh, you know, underlying business model that's effective, uh, you don't get to see the, the financials before you say, okay, we are, you know, the SPAC can buy that company. No, it just buys it. And, and, and now you're, in, you're, you're a WeWork investor when maybe you didn't want to be a WeWork investor. So, um, uh, so I, I just think that um, what this shows is that the, the markets were sick well before a bunch of people got together on Reddit and said, this is a way to make money on GameStop. Uh, uh, yeah. the, the, the larger problem is that we, for a generation, have over-financialized our economy so much that uh, uh, you know, for people who are coming up and thinking, how am I going to build wealth? How am I going to make, uh, you know, uh, uh, get a get a stable nest egg going for my kids they feel like they have to go on robin hood and like like trade stocks right because there's no you know the 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 lack of uh 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 productivity separating from from wages uh, all of the things over the last 40 years that have made our economy more based on capital than on labor income has led to this moment and there's this serious froth in financial markets because that's sort of where the economy is centralized. And that's the bigger problem. 
And you, you, you know, there's just been a lot of bashing of, of like, oh, these stupid kids who don't know anything about uh, investing. They're going on GameStop, or they're going on, they on Robinhood <laughs> or Wall Street bets, and they, they, they send up, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're betting up GameStop, and then it goes down and see, uh, leave it to the professionals. Well, the professionals are, are doing just as maniacal, ridiculous things in the markets, too. And so it's a larger problem. So this is there you uh, go. Will, thanks Will for putting Ross that up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Ava Q uh, gives us a, a heads up about this. Well, I mean, what a you don't even need a revolving door anymore. You leave the White House and like, why even go in the White House in the beginning? <laughs> I, you know, I think what's between this and I know it's not necessarily the same thing, but cryptocurrency, I feel like there's there's always some every two years a new uh, gimmick pops up until it seems like they might get regulated or there might be some oversight and then they find another loophole into to to, I mean, to what, quick you know what it's really like is plastics. like the night it's a lot like the 1920s so uh the, in the 1920s uh people got way overextended on uh various stock instruments securities and things like that right. and then we had the wall street crash in 1929 and out of that came a commission called the Pecora Commission. Uh, there was a guy named Ferdinand Pecora, who was a, a, a lawyer, uh, who investigated why there was all this speculation on Wall Street. And cre- it led to the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission, of the Glass-Steagall Act, and, and all of the protections that were put in thereafter. Uh, that's what we need right now. I mean, I think it's very clear that that's what we need right now. And it's not just GameStop that, that demonstrates that, but it's everything else going on in the markets. Uh, literally at like three in the morning today, uh, Elon Musk tweeted uh, dog coin, which uh, is something I really don't want to explain to you, but the stock, the, the, the coin, it's a cryptocurrency, went up 50% after he tweeted the word dog coin. Okay, so that's uh, so, a whole other thing, by the way. Let's okay, finish your sentence. Let's get to that because this is. But I mean, I mean, that so just shows you how insane and ridiculous this is, right? And 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 how much uh, uh, how much you know potential fraud and 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 misconduct is happening under the surface. So um, that that's that's my point. I, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. And you also mentioned it with the SPACs. Is it doesn't always have to be this way, but there's like an attachment of, of somebody who's famous, has a following. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the theme of this show today, and we don't really have show themes normally, but it is how everything in our country is built off of lies and bullshit, whether it's QAnon theories or Wall Street or, I mean, Wall Street very much so, or D- Donald Trump's entire uh, existence other than having, you know, a, a great uh, investor and his his father who basically helped him finagle his way into his first real estate deals, which were illegal, by the way. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's lies and bullshit. And, you know, even in the industry that I'm in right now, the media industry, uh, pulling back the curtain a little bit for folks, there's, there's sometimes uh, the money that's put into shows, it builds, they buy followers and suddenly... Uh, they get deals because of their followers. People don't realize it's not organic. The algorithm in itself is built to financialize certain types of arguments and people. Um, and so it's, it's, there's just so much fluff. There's so much, every side of our, our, of our economy and our, our discourse right now is, is sort of built from this like pseudo science, pseudo economic, pseudo 
uh, think it, 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 it's bullshit. It's just like a bunch of bullshit. It's, it's I mean, and that's really an accurate way of putting it. And, and uh, you know, the way that uh, a Wall Street analyst would call it would be froth. But what they're saying is bullshit. <laughs> that's yeah, what I mean, Elon Musk mean. has how many millions of followers? He's now the richest man in the world. How much and of that can was move, And he can move markets. He can that's move it. markets simply by tweeting. And, right. uh, and, and, you know, they have a name for this, which is called a pump and dump scheme. So right. somebody hypes up a stock. It goes way up. They sell it right at the top. And then the stock falls. And everybody who bought on the way up gets hurt on the way down. And that's what's happening with GameStop right now. And it's, it's probably going to happen with this dog coin or whatever the hell it is and, uh, and, and other things. But, um, you know, it's, it's part of a larger problem, which is we have too much of our economy centralized in these financial markets. And so what do you do about that? Well, we have new regulators coming in at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, Congress is looking into this. There's the possibility, I think, a commission should be created to really look at, at, at the, the stock market and at Wall Street and, 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 and the levels of over-speculation, unproductive trading, and fraud going on in it. Uh, I have a good idea for who that should be. Uh, the guy who was uh, Joe Biden's actually uh, biggest, uh, most, most closest aide for the last 50 years is a guy named Ted Kaufman, who uh, was briefly a senator and then ran the TARP Oversight uh, Commission for a little while and is actually very good on these kind of financial market issues. Um, uh, so we need this. I mean, uh, we, we need to get into a position where uh, you don't have to go onto a trading app to think that that's the only way that you can build wealth in this country. Um, we, we need to create better structures, and that means shrinking the size of finance as an overall percentage of the economy. And uh, I, I think it's pretty urgently needed, and it's, it's something we need to do in, the next, uh, in, in this presidential term. As a New Yorker um, who thinks that New York is a microcosm for, for the country and, and the market, I mean, I think that's it's very apparent when you're in New York. Let's shift to the other side of this because mm-hmm. uh, rightfully so there's this, this debate over the stimulus checks and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have this one, you have a piece out right now in the American prospect and you use a quote. Um, you say, let's just say that Biden had, has a far different conception of how this would have uh, would be perceived than reality, meaning these checks. Um, he says, I'm, I'm not going to start my administration by breaking a promise to the American people. He reportedly said on a call with House Democrats yesterday, referring to his support to keep the checks at $1,400, but changing the targeting most certainly would break that promise. Some would say conceiving of the checks as topping off to $2,000 after a $600 check in December is already breaking the promise. Um, I, 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 for one, I'm following this, but I think a lot of people are very confused Mm-hmm. about where we stand, how the numbers shifted, what are the qualifications, is there means testing? Can yeah. you give us a little bit of a brief on where we stand right now? Yeah, so uh, really the changes have come in, the, in recent days in the means testing. So, uh, uh, you know, Biden, since uh, he put out this, this piece of legislation after the Georgia elections, he has said uh, that he wants to add another $1,400 uh, stimulus check. That's part of his larger bill. Uh, the American Rescue Plan, and that uh, would top up 
you know, given the $600 that was sent in December, that would be a $2,000 uh, total. And so uh, he has said that, that, that this, is, this is what he wants. Uh, and in recent days, the argument has been, well, we could do this $1,400, but maybe not so many people should get it. Uh, previously, on the last two COVID bills, uh, everybody who makes up to $75,000 a year, and what year is important, we'll get back Thank to you. that. Yes. But uh, everyone who makes up the $75,000 a year as an individual was eligible for the checks, and then it would phase out, and it would completely be out by, you know, like eighty-five or 100000 something like that. Uh, for, for couples, you would just double that. Uh, now what they want to do is phase this out starting at $50,000 a year uh, for an individual and $100,000 for a couple. Um, so that would mean significantly less people. Everybody in the middle there, everyone between fifty and 75000 would uh, not get the same amount that they would have under the old rules. Um, so a lot of this is coming from a, a, a research paper that a guy named Raj Chetty, who is very tight with uh, people on the Hill, uh, put out showing uh, in uh, what he believes it to show is that uh, it, with the last check, people who made less than $50,000 a year spent it immediately, but people who made more than that didn't spend it as quickly. And so that means we shouldn't give it to people who make more than $50,000 a year. That, I think, is a bad argument. Uh, it, 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 just because they didn't spend it the second they needed it because they're in a survival situation doesn't mean that they won't benefit from it. Maybe they'll spend it at the end of the month when they have to pay their rent. Maybe they'll spend it on you know, some sort of deferred maintenance that they have to take care of. There are all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't spend it right away, but it, you would still spend it and it would still be valuable to you. Um, uh, but the second and, and, and maybe most important part of this is when you're talking about this targeting and these income thresholds and this means testing, it's currently based on the only earnings data that the federal government has on every individual. And that's the 2019 tax year because we have not done taxes for 2020 yet. So what happened in 2019? Well, that was before the pandemic. So if you were making $75,000 a year before the pandemic, and then you got laid off in March of last year when the pandemic hit and you haven't had a job yet under this system, you would be ineligible initially for this help because you would fall under this new uh, income threshold. Now, theoretically, I believe you can in your taxes uh, ask for that money back but you have to fill out a form and you got to wait weeks. And it's like, you know, that the burden is on you as an individual to know that, oh, I can still get that even if I wasn't eligible under my 2019 data, if I'm eligible under my 2020 earnings. But it, yeah, it's a mess. I mean, it's, why, it's why, like, it, yeah. Why couldn't anyway, they target yeah. to unemployment at least? I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying exclusively unemployment, but why couldn't they do some sort of well, um, okay, 2019 plus unemployment. Or, I don't know. I mean, the, the way they should do it is base it is give everybody the check. Oh, right. And then that, that makes when you do sense. your when you do your taxes, then they know exactly what you made in that calendar year, and then they can claw it back based on based on current data. Why are we using two year old data to try to figure out what people really deserve? 
uh, right now. It makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, you know, it would cost the same amount of money if you just did it the right way and, and gave people essentially a, an interest-free loan for a little while. It would also boost the economy. So um, the, the entire argument has no basis. Like what is being attempted here is they're trying to make some sort of wonk, wonky case for uh, this targeting thing, but it's a ridiculous wonky case. Like it doesn't make any sense on the economics at all. And, and how does it, it compare to like 2009 when we got our, uh, our big check? Uh, in 2009, we didn't get a check of nearly this size, as right. I recall, uh, number one. And, and number two, they, I think everybody got that check. I don't think there was any means testing uh, uh, in, well, in 2008, let's say, because uh, the, the, there was, in 2009, there was no check. There was this weird tax withholding thing where they, they, they gave you a few extra dollars every other week and, and you kind of didn't know. You, like, it, was, it was meant to be buried because the Obamas were so good at politics. They, 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 they literally tried to not call attention to the fact that they gave this, this free money to people. But uh, I, I don't want to talk about it. But um, in 2008, I don't think that was means tested whatsoever. I think they just gave everybody $300 or $500. And, and, like and, and looking back, it's comical. I mean, all of yeah. these. So, but, but yeah, there's no economic case for this, for changing the targeting. There's no political case for it. There's, there's no budget case for it. If you look at the difference, like if you did this, mm -hmm. what it would be the difference, like how much you would save in, in terms of the cost of the bill, it's like $45 billion. That's on an almost $2 trillion bill. It's 2% of the bill. It, like, who is this for? It's not for a budget hawk because it's not nearly enough in savings. It's not for anyone that really understands the economics because it makes no economic right. sense. It's who is it for? Like, why are we doing this? Is it just to, to just chip away at people and give people that, that really probably are in an area that they might need some help uh, a harder time of, of getting that help? It, it makes no sense. So but before we head out, um, it's, it's not an easy question to answer, but I feel like you're the person who has a more holistic understanding of how this economy is, is functioning right now. I, when you ask questions like, who is it for? I, I, I'm really struggling to understand why they don't distribute these checks, why, don't, why they don't cancel student debt, mm -hmm. because when everyone is spending, the, the, if they have any money, the remaining money they have um, or income they have, on rent, they're not able to pay rent, I mean, excuse me, on, on student loans, they're not pay, able to pay rent or other bills. So it, it seems like to me that other industries, whether it's the credit card industry or your, 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 your landlord or mortgages or whatever it is, that they have an incentive to say cancel student debt alone, or they have an incentive to also push for greater stimulus. I don't understand why there is this, this frustration. Even Republicans should be on board with this at this point. I mean, Repu many Republicans have said they were on board right. with this. They, you know, uh, when, when Donald Trump said, I want these checks up to $2,000, 35 Republicans in the House voted for that bill. And that was because of pork. That was like a... a well, it was because of Trump. Because Trump said so, I think, uh, is part of it. But... Uh, but, you know, there were uh, at least enough members of the Senate 
to get 60 votes, at least at that time. That's what everybody said uh, for uh, upping these checks. The only obstacle was Mitch McConnell. Now, here we are. Chuck Schumer's in charge. Uh, Joe Biden's in the White House. And now we're playing with the checks. I, I, I don't understand. I, 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 and, and, and here's the bigger thing. This was a campaign promise. Of course. So, so Joe Biden said this very, very specifically. Those checks will immediately go out the door. Try explaining to someone who made $60,000 a year in 2019 uh, that, the, oh, yeah, you were eligible to get a check in March of last year, but you're not eligible now. And I'm still keeping my promise, but we've decided to target it. Better. Like, think of the knots that you're going to have to tie yourself into to explain to that individual who, who will vote in, in 2022, including in Georgia, where Reverend Warnock is on the ballot. And he specifically said, want a $2,000 check, vote Reverend Warnock. That was literally a, a, a campaign out of his. So uh, I, I think politically, this is suicidal. Uh, and and uh, maybe the people in Washington don't understand this, about how this will play outside the beltway. But uh, uh, this, this, it's, the fact that there's no economic case for it either is almost besides the point. The political case is just absolutely horrible. And the Republicans are already, and right-wing media, they're already pivoting to the Democrats are not delivering what they promised you and, and it's really it puts us in a tough situation surprise, because surprise. we're frustrated also but we also you know what are we supposed to defend I, bottom line political suicide makes me feel like i don't even know if they ever really wanted to win the senate because if they hadn't won the senate it would have been a very easy way out of the situation <laughs> right <laughs> and, 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 and i mean i mean there are i mean let's let's say there is a world in which they still are trying to bargain with Republicans, and they're not actually doing that. Like, they are going forward with this reconciliation process yeah. where they only need 50 votes in the Senate. So that's good. I mean, you know, they, they, they are trying to uh, do something at or near the level of what Joe Biden was talking about, which is a $1.9 trillion bill, and that's very significant. But the checks thing, it's like, first of all, the, the vast majority of people who are going to see benefits from this bill are the people who get the direct checks. Uh, it's just, that's just math, right? I mean, more yeah. people are going to get them than anybody else. And so, you know, it's also the most popular piece of the legislation. Like right. it, it polls at 78% for nothing in this country polls that high, right? So you're messing with the thing that's the most popular part of the bill that everyone, the most amount of people in the bill are going to see. What is the logic of that? Ask Joe Manchin. All right. <laughs> David, Dan, so lovely having you on. Always, yeah, uh, you know, you're, you're a prolific writer and um, go check out the American Prospect. Sign up for their listserv, their, their email list where you can get updates because he is hard at work. Hard at work making us understand these very complicated things that are moving um, very quickly and being invented also very quickly. Right. Uh, so definitely appreciate that. Maybe we should do like a crowdsourced fund for a SPAC. And, um, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. No Miki SPAC. Yeah. Let's create a Reddit and make it <laughs> the, like some vague, we don't want, we don't want my name on it. We have to like make it very vague, something. Okay. So, so folks don't understand who's behind. <laughs> it's like a shadow group. Uh, David, thanks for joining us it. as always. <laughs> Next time you're on, we'll hopefully have that set up. There you go.
All right, we'll be right back with Aaron Chowdhury and Rep Rab to talk about today's news. Welcome back to the Nomiku Show. So uh, before we go to our next panel, I have a little bit of a promo to do. Uh, Tonight, just in a couple hours, at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, uh, Matriarch Organization, Matriarch Movement, uh, is going to be doing an event. It is a crowdsourced fundraiser, and we are, uh, we're all going to be on it. And uh, the headliners are Representative Rokana, Stephanie Kelton, and uh, Sarah Nelson, who is, of course, the president of the Flight Attendants uh, Union, the, the Flight Attendant Workers. And there's a huge list of, of hosts on the host committee that are going to be there in support. Um, it's a great event because we're fundraising for the first training to recruit labor women to run for Congress in 2022. I think we can all agree that uh, now that the numbers are out, women have, especially women in labor on the front lines, have really mm. been hit the hardest uh, due to this pandemic and what is likely to be Great Depression 2.0. And so it's important that we have more voices like Cori Bush, who is one of the founding members of Matriarch, more voices like hers in Congress. So join us at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. There's also going to be a special announcement. And I believe we just got word that Senator Nina Turner is joining us as well at the top. So you don't want to miss this. It's going to be amazing. Uh, go get your tickets right now. It's basically give what you can. You know, we're, we're a, a pretty, uh, you know, crowdsourced organizations. So uh, whatever you can, uh, definitely join us. And if you can't make it, but you still want to watch it, check, get a ticket and we'll send out you the link, send you the link out a little bit later. I am getting updates as I'm on air being told what to tell. So um, that's the update I have. Go check out the link, go to Matriarch Org on Twitter and we'll have the link in um, the info section. All right. It's Thursday. So you know what that means. Arun Chadri is here. Uh, joining us, are you, where are you right now, Ron? I am in Kosovo. I am in Pristina, although oh, today... Pristina? Pristina? Uh, Pristina, the capital. Pristina? Pristina. <laughs> it's been 15 years since I had to memorize every single capital in the world, okay? And, <laughs> and Kosovo was not a nation then. And Kos- you know, exactly. Yeah. Beat me to it, damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but what was interesting today, and sorry to jump in before you even started with some kind of monologue uh, that will even sound pre-prepared, but it's just interesting, is that I spent all day uh, out with the candidate, and it was very normal politics. Like, there was masks on, and I was a little nervous because there was kind of a lot of people, but, like, it was my first, like, fit, you know, I realized it was the longest I had gone since joining the Obama campaign in 2007 without sort of that kind of crowds, people, a candidate, a car, which car are you in? Make sure you're in the right car. You know, a lot of worrying about the car, this kind of thing. Wait, you didn't have that experience with, with Bernie? No, I didn't have that experience with Bernie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Red Senator Brad. left? Oh, geez, no, no, how no, long he's here. ago? He's here. Yeah. Oh, oh, Senator Sanders, yeah. Senator's like, I'm just going to go walk down the street to Applebee's to have my dinner. You meet us there, okay? He's like, oh, okay, good, good. I'll I'll see you in a minute. I'm just going to go walk down the street. Uh, Rep. Rab, of course, is representing, looking very suave today because he's at the Capitol. Rep. Rab is, of course, uh, representing the 200th District of Pennsylvania, the Northwest Philadelphia District that turned out 
saved our remaining remnants of democracy, I guess. A lot is, lot is, a lot of weight on your shoulders right now. Thanks for joining us. And you're on mute. Oh, you're on mute. You're on mute. You're on mute. Unmute yourself. (laughs) Every time. I'm such a novice. I I was just saying that I'm in my my office in Harrisburg, which is 104 miles west of Philly. And uh, it's, it's, uh, tomorrow will be my last legislative day for, um, we go, we won't be back for another five weeks. So we're trying to get a lot in. We had a snowstorm. So yeah, we got a lot. And then tomorrow I'm gonna be speaking on the house floor talking about Black History Month. And this is something I bought a couple years ago. Just, I'm gonna hold it up. Uh, let's see if I can get up here. This is a compendium of the uh, Pennsylvania General Assembly deliberations on whether or not to strip black men of the right to vote in 1838. Oh and they amended the state constitution to, to prohibit us. When we had that right as all free men from 1790 to 1838, we could do it. And then in 1838, uh, the all white legislature says, yeah, I think they've had enough time voting. Whose bill was that? So was it an act of building them? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. It was Sorry. an amendment to the state constitution. That's that what was, I was wondering. That was yeah. passed in 1838. So these are the deliberations of uh, my all white male predecessors from roughly 190 years ago. And this is what I swore my oath on, by the way. I didn't use a Bible. I used this to remind me what I'm fighting against. How did you get that? I'm a nerd. I find things. And, you know. God, I bet nothing's changed. I bet just some language. Otherwise, you find a lot of familiar arguments. Uh Yeah, pretty much. This is Pennsylvania. And, like, family members of the people who made those original arguments in your uh, house. When you're... uh, I'm sure you're going to speak on this because of the beginning of Black History Month. Uh, but send us that clip. We'd love to share that next time you're on or in between. Absolutely. Um, I hate to have to pivot to this because it's like, talk about profound uh, profound here. So the capital is, is a disaster right now. Uh, we're in this transition right now. We have, and, and, and you're all political professionals, were this, the first half of the show was dedicated to, the first part of the show was dedicated to Marjorie Taylor Greene and this world of lies and bullshit that we're living in. And then the second part was about Wall Street's lies and bullshit uh, that we've been built on. And you know this very well. You wrote a book on this, uh, Rep. Rap called Invisible Capital. Uh, but, but we actually do have to deal with some stark issues. And there is a debate right now over st- student loan debt, right? You have... The Biden administration has one number that they want to put out, and they've even shifted on that number. And there is uh, the Senate has just proposed a bill with and Congress to, with for a different number. I mean, I I'm no, like, but I mean, it feels like Charles M. Schumer. This is like the you know, this is his moment. So go ahead, yeah, don't. <laughs> no, you're right. That's it. So we have this this clip of Jen Psaki, the new White House press secretary. Can we play that clip. 
the president has and continues to support canceling uh, $10,000 of federal student loan debt per person as a response to the COVID crisis. He's calling on Congress to draft the proposal. And if it is, uh, if it is passed um, and sent to his desk, he will look forward to signing it. Uh, debt relief is, of course, an important priority for the president. On day one, the first day of his administration, he directed the Department of Education to extend the existing pause on student loan payments and interest for millions of Americans with federal student loans. That was the step he took through executive action, uh, but he certainly supports efforts uh, by members in Congress to take additional steps, and he would look forward to signing it. So he would do that through legislation and not an EO, not an executive order? Well, I think he uh, took the step, uh, already took a step through an executive action on the first day, and he would look to Congress to take the next steps. Yeah. Go for it, Ron. I know you've got your, I can see your arms. You're like, I got <laughs> No, it's just, and Jen's a friend, but it's just like such sort of obvious, like stagecraft of getting ready to let somebody down. You know what I mean? If like this person's about to break up with you in like a couple of weeks. So when I see this, it makes me feel like Biden and Schumer, who are people who get along and are friends, are actually doing a pantomime performance and that the number is going to be hopefully closer to 50 than to 10. Uh, but we'll, we're not going to get the whole loaf on this one. And I think we should see a lot of that, a lot of sort of orchestrated infighting on the Democrats to keep the real fights down. And that's smart. Controlled fires, you know, keeps the forest going. I mean, what's weird to me about these numbers they're not really based on anything, in my opinion. If so, it's like some random guy that they assigned to go write a policy paper. Uh, <laughs> that's what they, they used it to reference. Uh, insider tip, pro tip for guy, for people to know. Uh, if you ever want to cite something, just have someone go write something on Medium, and then it's, that's a totally. way to cite it. <laughs> that's like the, the trick for everyone. Um, but it's not... The fifty thousand dollar number is not really based on anything. Ten thousand dollar number. No, this is all PR. There's people like me deciding a room's like, what do you think? Ninety-nine cents sounds better than a buck fifty, right? Right? Am I right? It was like they couldn't do a trillion dollars in the stimulus, you know, because a trillion sounded bad. Rahm Emanuel was like a trillion sounds bad. I, it, but but Rep. Rob, this is this is pretty common, right? Like that they move the goalposts to, to this is the frame we're debating, ten thousand to fifty thousand, not a hundred, not elimination but 10 to 50 and that's all you get. And that'll happen like in five years, by the way, maybe. It's laziness. It is a lack of creativity around the power of narrative, right? Because do you remember when, um, I forget which one it was, uh, Ben or Jerry did the Oreo cookies animation? That's old school, I love that. I will never forget the Oreos and the proportionality of how much we spend on our military compared to everything else and just taking, what, a quarter of one Oreo while this huge stack remains for our military could wipe out all kinds of things. He's like, I'm a dessert guy, so I think in terms of food, right? So imagine if every $10 million was one Oreo. That's what we need to be doing mm -hmm. uh, on this uh, side of the aisle because the, the language and messaging that um, our adversaries have, as foul as it is, is really effective. It's so effective that people who don't agree with them use their language. When we say such things as tax relief or the death or the death tax or um, gay marriage or you know, those are terms that 
help our adversaries. And we have to be more creative, not just with the policy. I mean, I think the policy substance is, is, is there. There's plenty of folks who know what the right numbers are. But whatever the right numbers are to pull us out of this staggering debt and allow us to spend our money on other things that can help our communities and local neighborhoods and such, we have to frame it in, in, in narratives that are meaningful. And we just seem to be paralyzed and allergic to storytelling. Iran, you're a storyteller. I feel like that was a- Yeah, how'd I do, Iran? I'm all of you, boom. Yeah, it's just feelings on top of feelings, you know, because uh, now we're talking about what the upper limit should be. And we've talked about on this program, the three of us, a million times now about how if something's not universal, no one's gonna get it. But now I have people who are very reasonable Democrats who I'm friends with on my Facebook, you know, uh, saying things like, well, if someone makes 150K, like, did they really, you know, did they, did they lose their job? And you're like, just come on, you know? Like, so we're gonna means test the relief. We're gonna make sure that student debt only, do, do I want Donald Trump's kids getting their student debt relief? You know, like whatever, like crazy argument. But also, Arun, but $150,000 in household income, and maybe it's house, doesn't mean the same thing depending on where you live. And also it says nothing about household financial wealth. It can right? be paycheck because, to paycheck, absolutely. Right, yeah. because if, if you're living in or near a city and you have staggering debt and you have income in just that given year, it's not you know going back historically, it, it says nothing about the lack of the, the asset poverty that so many struggling middle-class yeah. educated folks live in it all the time. And then we put the racial lens on top of that, you know, the, the stat, like for every dollar of, of financial wealth that a, a white family has, a black family has a nickel, a nickel. So you're telling me means testing doesn't include wealth. It doesn't just, that is, that is very, very problematic for anyone on this side of the aisle to suggest that that's somehow appropriate. It's like when President Obama suggested that racism is not so much a thing, it's more class. Right. It, it's, it, it's not based in reality and it, it does, that simplistic evaluation hurts us on so many levels. We, we have to be substantive on this. And what's interesting about that is it's all conditional. So if you wanna qualify for literally anything in this country, they do look at your wealth. But if you need aid, they don't look at your wealth. Hmm, interesting. And the same thing with, with Obama in terms of class. It's the one time he ever dropped the class word, but related to every other issue that he put for you. Sorry, Ron, I know you, you work for Obama, but <laughs> class was not played a part. It didn't play a part in any sort of decision making. Um, I have no doubt we're going to talk about this for a little bit longer. So... <laughs> Let's hold it in. Uh, on, on a similar note, speaking of the Obama administration and, and Iran mentioned Rahm Emanuel, uh, Rahm Emanuel thinks that uh, he has a lot of opinions about bipartisanship. Biden has shown concentration and capacity and competence around COVID. I see sitting like After that. the last four years, he's taken the temperature from 103 down to 97.1. What? And he's doing it really well. This guy wants a job so bad. He needs to make 
bipartisanship is number one priority because we need to show that government oh, can work in a bipartisan Mary. way in order to bridge no. the divide. And what Rahm Emanuel would say was, the way you deal with the division is you solve all the problems in people's lives and then the division start wow. to flood away. But to be like literal about unity and bipartisanship and making that the goal puts Republicans in charge as to whether or not you're successful right. when what people really yeah, want is to solve the Well, first of all, I think the national media have really done a disservice to the public. Unity and bipartisanship are not the same thing. They've collapsed one into the other. Consensus and unity are not the same. I actually think you should have a universal national service bill not optional. Every high school kid that graduates, you're gonna do six months or five months, whatever. We need another generation of remembering and learning their American identity and giving something. That's that would a, help. A, that would help with divide. Well, we're, we're, we're a screwed up generation. At least start with another generation on the right path. And look, our cultural and, and educational institutions have not adapted to the change in the economy of the workforce. and. For too many families of all walks of life in all parts of America, they have seen the fortunes of their children stagnate to decline. What's that angle? For Biden to be a good president <laughs> no. for them, these are people who voted for Trump. Does he go big or does he go bipartisan? I would definitely go big. I would have a massive infrastructure, massive education and training, and massive research and development. Means uh, policy. After the Civil War, we go with land-grant colleges and the Transcontinental Highway. After World War II, we go with the GI Bill and the yeah. National Highway yeah, Bill. Yeah, yeah. My view, invest in America, and I would just tell China, oh my God. watch All out, right. after you. Simple as that. Simple as that. <laughs> Brought to you Simple by the guy who wanted that. to privatize the entire government. Like, um, Look, a, it's a just like ago. when whatever the music is on, on when you're in college, you kind of stick with it. I mean, step into the 90s with Rahm Emanuel, right? <laughs> I, I don't want to say anything because, so you know, I'm a native Chicagoan and I don't want to curse. So I don't. I'll bleep over you. Just say <laughs> you'll bleep over me. <laughs> It, it's he's a fucking joke. Wait. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm just. I, I mean, I, I want to laugh about it, but I'm so enraged to what he did to to my um, to my city. I, I it, it is it is the height of irony what he's talking about because he didn't care about poor black folk in Chicago. He didn't care. He was protecting cops who were killing kids. Like I just he he has no standing whatsoever whatsoever and this is part of i mean what was so revealing to me and I, I get extremely frustrated when you know we have these golden parachutes with people who uh fail in government fail in finance they really have to go above and beyond and and ron you and i were talking about this on the on the podcast about tammany the the plunket of tammany hall and how uh, it, we always demonize the poor when they jump a turnstile or someone misses uh you know a tax payment or something yet the the, the worst actors they really have to go above and beyond to be shunned mm -hmm. um from the political establishment and the media establishment and I, I mean i don't know how much worse you could get than mom Emanuel recently in the last 10 years and yet he got his abc contract he's doing same thing with jen palmary i'm not saying that she's 
evil, but she was part of part of administration. She's not the future of the Democratic Party. Even She's part of the game. And you that's can right. that's what this whole thing was. It's why I felt like inside the NFL with these weird floating angles and stuff, because it's not even like about what they're saying. It's about setting the mood. And that's just so weird, you know, and. It's but it's OK so- now because because Biden is is back. So now they can all go back into their new positions. <laughs> I think we're talking about Obama before. And I think Obama really missed an opportunity in his book, which I haven't read, but uh, I intend to <laughs> have it. Um, he missed an opportunity, and I haven't read <laughs> it. People tell me all the things. People tell me all the things. And I've read this part to sort of throw Rahm Emanuel under the bus and to be like, that guy was a jerk, and I really shouldn't let him in my administration. And imagine all the great things that would have done without him. Uh, but the way the elites just circle around and protect the elite, like, you know, Jen Palmieri is a relatively nice, normal person, but she's not going to invite someone on her strange art show and, like, come at them. It's just, like, they're all going to protect each other. I reminded of the time that sort of Hillary Clinton by accidentally praised Nancy Reagan on AIDS. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't, like, honestly, it wasn't, like, malicious. I don't think she was thinking, oh, you know, I hate all of my gay brothers and sisters. I think she was just like, oh, I'm sure Nancy Reagan was good on this because she's a person yeah. like me. And you're like, yeah, no, that's not the team you're supposed to be on. You're I mean, after after uh, Rahm Emanuel, we can we can wrap the Rahm Emanuel part for a second. Uh, but after he completely wrecked the DCCC and we lost so many seats, I mean, he should have never been invited back in. Just like the woman he's been proven who, wrong. What's the point? Why do we? Yeah, why are we? What are we talking about? Just like the woman who 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 used that, who was given that contract for the app in Iowa for the Iowa caucuses, had no experience. She shouldn't have failed up. Just like. Uh, you know, uh, what's his name from the, the, the campaign manager for the Hillary Clinton campaign should be failing up and getting media contracts. You know well, that doesn't happen You'll be us. Commerce Secretary eventually if you mess right. up. Right, or, or in Philadelphia with this COVID scandal with the, 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 the group of young white guys with no background in healthcare, medicine, or anything get a major contract from the city of Philadelphia to administer COVID tests and vaccinations. And no one knows how they got it. But here's the thing that most people did understand. The first assumption they made was, oh, they're a bunch of 20-something white boys. They knew somebody, and they had the privilege of whiteness to make it all go away. They'll be okay. But like you said, you jump a turnstile, you get, you you know, your your life has changed. But this guy is going to be a CEO of another startup, you know, and that's, and here's, I mean, here's the thing, like, at what point do white folk in positions of power who claim to be on the right side of history just put it out there and say, you know, whiteness is a problem. White patriarchy, you know, heteropatriarchy. I mean, just like these are long words, they're difficult and they're hard to accept. And look, I'm a straight cis guy. Like it's not always fun having conversations about things that I may do that are missteps, miscommunications, uh, acculturations that are not particularly good. And it's a constant state of learning and improving if you have the the courage of your convictions to, to like live your values and say, I want to be better. But collectively, the people in power, whether they're conservative, progressive, Democrat, Republican, if we're going to be real about this, then the conversations that we're having here are the conversations that need to be having, need to have uh, 
we need to have behind closed doors because anything less, it becomes the circus. It's political theater, and we're not going to move ahead unless there are mass mobilizations, which was great because when we had mass mobilizations, we had a multi-ethnic, multi-class group of folks from all over who demanded things that were about systemic change and address things that folks who are in the elite uh, feel no pressure to address in meaningful ways. Exactly. And the worst thing about his little tirade there was the perversion of what Rab is saying, the actual perversion right. of the idea of unity and service into, wouldn't it be great if we sent all the rich kids to summer camp, you know, or whatever, while other people actually have to like make a living, you know, <laughs> like. Beautiful transition here because. <laughs> well <said. laughs> Jeffrey Zucker. Uh, who has been running CNN for the last few years, who, uh, don't forget, was was at NBC, the head of NBC, when The Apprentice was was their top show, uh, knows Donald Trump very well, and then, you know, just happened to be running CNN when Donald Trump had his meteoric rise. Uh, and I was doing a lot of CNN at that time, and I can't tell you, it's become a meme, but it was it was a real thing, how many times I would sit there commenting on an empty podium of Donald Trump's while I knew there was a 30, 40,000 person uh, event for Bernie Sanders that was not being, and, and, and then when I would go on to talk about it, they would just sort of like laugh at me and, and dismiss me. Um, Jeffrey Zucker has said that he is going to be stepping down at the end of 2021. My guess is he's gonna have some sort of beautiful transition to his next venture probably partnering with Bill Shine from Fox News, who went over to the White House as communications director, uh, protege to Roger Ailes. I'm going to guess they're going to come together. This is just my wager. We could take bets. They're going to build a new network based on bipartisanship called uh, CNN Fox or some, you know, some clever. Some clever kind of third network. way network. Yeah, that's, that, maybe that's it. It's just called the third way. And everybody who's on it is like, Chris Christie and Rahm Emanuel just like giving high fives to each other all day long. Everyone's super reasonable all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The alternative to Newsmax in our show, because we're the same. Right. No, I mean, I mean, I know I, I, I'm, I'm laughing about this, but the concern here obviously is that you had a news network who's not being held accountable for their assistance in creating, I mean, as much as, as as they say later that they pushed back against Trump once he was in office, that campaign was the Trump campaign on air. Kaylee McEnany, Scotty Nels Hughes, uh, multiple right-wingers, far right-wingers were on there, way outnumbering Bernie Sanders, who almost won the primary. And Jen Palmieri, and I mean, the rest of the panels were, were Hillary people. There's, it, it is without a doubt manipulation. I mean, I have my own personal experiences I've talked about on the show before in which they basically gave me ultimatums to say certain things or else I wouldn't be brought back on. Guess what, I'm not back on. This is a problem. And unless we have oversight, it's just gonna get worse. Um, I mean, it, where do we go from here? Well, I mean, I, I don't know what the solutions are, but, but both, of you, both of you have a lot of experience in communications and politics. So you're the ones I ask. Uh, well, I mean, I just got to say, I say this, I've been saying this for years. Um, whatever your first issue is, whatever you care about most deeply, whether it's environmental justice or gender equity or whatever, your, your second and third issues have to be uh, electoral reform mm -hmm. and media reform. That's right. And if you don't understand the connection between those things, they've won, right? If you don't know that CNN is an extension. It's not, 
it is a corporation that is focused on uh, newsy entertainment, but it is not true journalism in, in, the, in the most meaningful sense of the fourth estate. It's not. And if you just look at the corporate media outlets and you're talking about um, all the stuff around um, immigrant detention and separation of families and so forth, did you see a single Central American expert like once? No. I mean, did they ever overwhelming say Roberta Casares' name, anything like that? No. You, no, you didn't see it, like, and then and, and you go to MSNBC, like, let's not forget that before Comcast got in there, it was General Electric, who happens to be a major defense contractor. To think that that is not going to influence the programming and the messaging of the journalists who work there is not reasonable. And I don't think we can we can have certain uh, expectations of an entity that is really about maximizing shareholder value. At the end of the day, we should not be having for-profit um, media outlets of that size and use them as our point of reference. It is not reasonable, it is not good, but we have to have the civic literacy about why our media concentration is mm -hmm. so, um, uh, uh, injurious to our participatory democracy. Media literacy, write it down. I, yes. you know, I would contend to you that someone living in uh, America in 1813 was more media literate, understood what the newspapers were about and where they were coming from than people do now. And it's so dangerous what you're talking about, Nomi, because like people who get this right really get this right. So forget Donald Trump. Before Donald Trump, there was uh, Silvio Berlusconi in Italy who achieved power purely through a kind of aggressive centrist television, right? In a country that is like very left and very right. He gave this sort of mushy American suburban view of what Italy could be uh, that painted a sort of nostalgic picture for Italy that wasn't even true there. You know, <laughs> like, and it just created a whole cloth. Uh, is that as possible now with independent voices on YouTube like we are now or other places? Harder, but I don't know, you know? People sort of, people are a bit arrogant about the death of television in a way. They sort of like to stomp on its grave, but TV is still TV and yeah. it carries an awful lot of weight. No, it's true. And, and obviously they're, they're venturing into other platforms to make sure that uh, the more independent sides can't pop. I mean, there, there are great shows out there that have worked very hard to earn millions of followers like Majority Report and Pac-Man and of course the Young Turks and uh, uh, I'm, I'm leaving out a million friends of ours. But, you know, the, 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 the ones who have huge followings, David Dole, uh, you know, the Human Rights Report, uh, the Rational National, uh, those are shows that have worked really hard. It's harder now because these media companies are like, wait, wait, what's happening? Oh, we got to get in on this. And they have. And, and they're, they're there. And they're there. They take up as much of the oxygen as anybody else, you know? Exactly. Exactly. We've got a lot of work to do. Um, inshallah. As, <laughs> as Joe, Joe Biden once. <laughs> <laughs> Rep Rab, Arun Chowdhury, Rep Rab, uh, good luck while you're in Harrisburg. Stay warm. Uh, I hope you don't get any fights with any uh, COVID deniers or you know, double mask it, triple mask it, whatever Fauci's saying this week. Just just be more, you know, put a plastic wrap around you. We need you. <laughs>
Around Chowdhury, enjoy Kosovo. Thank you. Very normal endings to shows. This is what you get <laughs> on the Nomiki show. Go wrap yourself in plastic wrap and go into the capital and please be safe in Kosovo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, we got a few shout outs before we go. Uh, we have Twitch and YouTube shout outs. Stephen Rossi, excuse me. Peti- oh, Rep Rab left. Petition for Rep Rab to try to convince Sarah Inamorado to come on for a Fem Friday. If you can hear me, Rep Rab, let's petition that. If not, I'll message you. Done. Done? We do Fem Fridays on Friday. Love it. So much fun. Get you guys on together. Be like a whole Pennsylvania segment. Uh, Ian Kinzel says GOP gets Tammany Hall's lessons, oil slash coal, military slash police, act as jobs programs, preserving conservative community lifestyles. Dems must relearn this if they want to. That's why progressives need to be in office. Sue Far says Rom and Meghan McCain are examples that U.S. is the opposite of a meritocracy. We have institutions built on legacy and failing upward. How do we fix it? Uh, break up monopolies, I think, would be more. I think I think it would it would permeate a lot of these institutions. I'm not entirely sure, but I think that's one part of it. Uh, obviously, campaign finance reform, media reform, a lot of different aspects. Or we could just go buy an island, like crowdsource an island, and, and <laughs> declare war on the U.S. <laughs> making. I don't know what else we could do at this point. Uh, and we'd have to make sure that the island is not inhabited by anybody. Because let's be very clear. The Galapagos. And it has to have uh, a source of fresh water. Yes, that's important. Or we could just, oh, I have a better idea. We could crowdsource a spaceship, go to whatever planet Elon Musk is going to and declare war on him and basically colonize Elon Musk's planet that has a fresh source of water that he built because he wanted to make sure he was safe. No? All right, I'm making things up now. Prairie Fire Kowalski for Nebraska. Thank you for the cup of coffee. And just a reminder, to, oh, before we go, uh, just a reminder to everybody that we have the Matriarch uh, fundraiser today. If you can join us, it starts in about an hour and five minutes. We have great names. We're going to have a huge announcement. Uh, Nina Turner has just joined at the top. She's, of course, running for Congress in Ohio for Marsha Fudge's uh, uh, seat that she has just been appointed to the administration, the Biden administration. Representative Ro Khan is joining us, Stephanie Kelton, Sarah Nelson. Harvey Kay is going to join us. Uh, Amy Valella. Let me pull. I don't have time to pull it up. Got a lot of names that are going to be joining us, but those are the big speakers. Uh, we're going to be talking about how we raise money to recruit Women of labor, especially those who've been on the front lines, because their voices need to be in Congress. We need more Cori Bushes, who is a nurse, who went in there on like day one and was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh Nope, not happening. We need more voices like hers in Congress. We're going to talk about how we get there. And of course, this is fundraising to help train and recruit candidates. Uh, thank you, by the way, to Harvey K for mixing it up in the live chat on YouTube and Twitch and Docs and Mario Q for working those algorithms. And as always, our moderators, the best mods in the biz, if I can say so, Bob Choken, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel on YouTube, and Dorian Sapiens, Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, and Nug Wrangler on Twitch for keeping that chat room troll-free. Send us your information at show at gmail.com because we want to send you love for being so generous and lovely to our show. Uh, as always, stay in solidarity, and we will see you tomorrow for Friday.